Bodies in the Bayous, a podcast by Morgan Kelly and Gretchen Scanlon, presents Season 4, Iola, Eroding Justice. Episode 8, Lover's Lane. So one of the things that um, did happen in this case, as Betty's case came to close and there was arrest of, an arrest of a suspect, what was happening in Sally's case was that the KBI agents assigned to Sally's case promised that they would not leave until the case was solved. But slowly those resources were needed on other cases. So agents were reassigned to other cases. So even though the KBI promised that they would always be invested in that case, those resources get assigned to newer cases. And you hear less and less about what's happening. Going forward, we're starting to look at suspects in Sally's case. And in order to do that, we've really run out of the paper trail that we have available to us through open records requests. We've talked about how that has come about and the reason that we don't have any of those records in several other episodes. We're not going to really go over that again, but it's important to kind of know how we got here, how we ended up having this case. I think that's one of the most asked questions that we get, especially with where our previous seasons have been in Texas, and then we kind of jumped into the Kansas. So, you know, this case was presented to us by friends of yours, actually, um, that are residents of Iola. And then talking about how much this case kind of impacted their lives, even though for many of them, they weren't growing up at that time. They weren't classmates of hers. Some of them weren't even born yet. It was interesting, though, about how it had really affected the town on having a case of a 14-year-old girl murdered that was never solved. Right. And then, you know, Sally Hutton's tragedy has always been kind of grouped in with Betty's, Betty Crenshaw's also, right? When we left kind of that first drawing board, you know, when we went to the wedding and they kind of presented this case to us, we left thinking that they were connected as well. Because that's what the town believes. Right. Or, I mean, they might be slowly changing their minds or have come to different conclusions over time. But the majority of people believe, because the town is so small and they happened within the week of each other, that they're connected. Well, and I can remember that 11-hour car ride that we had on the way home after this case was presented to us. And discussing and kind of looking up things and trying to find information on on both of those cases we really felt like they were connected oh yeah you couldn't convince me any differently i mean really for a very long time we're talking six months or more and the more that we have looked into this the more we're looking at them as two separate cases Mm -hmm. two separate things but i don't think it was until another friend of yours that has uh, some background in law enforcement had literally told you you have to look at these as two different cases you cannot look at them the same if you know they start connecting then yes maybe they're connected but if you can't connect it don't force the connection right so at that point we started kind of breaking them down into two separate cases two different investigations and coming home you know and I think we'll explore this in a later episode but you know we had a lot of that discussion about could this be somebody 
just who came through town, murdered these two women and moved on. And we'll have an episode kind of on that theory and looking at that and breaking that down. But that was a lot of what that car ride home was about. You know, what were the possibilities of how these two cases could be connected? And then we decided to take up this these cases and take a look at them. And the next planning was that trip back to Iola, go and talk to people who were close to this case, who knew Sally, who knew Betty, who could give us more insight of what was going on in their lives at the time. Right. And in between those two trips, you know, we also reached out to law enforcement who kind of let us down in between there with even withholding cases, I mean, withholding documents um, in Betty Cantrell's case, even though it's considered closed. You know, we have hit a dead end anywhere we can with law enforcement, and that's unfortunate. I mean, they are talking to us. I'm not going to say they're not emailing us back, but we were hoping to have more documentation, legal documentation, by the time we went up there. The missing transcripts has been, you know, a huge setback. Um, so even on that trip back up there, we're still trying to put those pieces together because we don't have them other than the people who will talk to us. And then, you know, through that, we began that journey of trying to make contact with uh, Sally Hutton's family. And so we made those first initial calls to Sally Hutton's sister, Carolyn, but then the big push didn't for that trip to go back to Iola was to make sure that we got a chance to meet with Carolyn face by face to face. That began the journey of going to Carolyn's house. And when we got there, she explained that her sister Brenda um, had passed away, but that over the years, and we had read those letters, you know, in the papers of going back and looking for those documents, we'd read the letters from the sisters pleading for anybody to come forward with information, asking for the public's help for information, and just trying to hope that somebody would help figure out what had gone on in this case. But getting there and going to Carolyn's house and meeting her for the first time was an experience all on its own. I mean, you know, anytime that you go to meet with with the families and, and start, you know, having an interview with them, it's the unknown there, you know, but with Carolyn, she was eager to yeah. talk with us. And upon entering, you know, she had her little island there that had every article that she still had, every letter, any letters written back to her, notes of, you know, phone conversations that she had, even if it was on scrap pieces of paper, you know, just seeing all the pictures of Sally that she had, you right. know, was, I mean, she was, she wanted to tell the story. And I think in that moment for me, I was just like, wow. I mean, it was even bigger than what I thought it was, if that makes sense. You know, for me walking into Carolyn's house, because she is very much a collector of memories. She has, you know, collector's plates on the walls and uh, family pictures hung up on another wall and uh, little mementos along um, different bookshelves and, and different things. You know, I was struck by the fact that in every one of those memories that she's collected along the way, how many of them Sally hasn't been part of. You know, Sally was only able to be part of those memories for 14 years, but for the last 54 years, Carolyn has built these memories in this life without her. It was almost like seeing, like seeing the space 
that Sally should have been in. Mm-hmm. Because even though, you know, Sally hasn't been here on Earth, like, she's been very much still a part of Carolyn's life. I mean, she, right. like you said earlier, you know, she's carrying that torch. And she's really the only one left to do so. Yeah, so Carolyn lives about an hour outside of Iola. And um, she has lived there for many years. And why she was writing the letters, in the letters, she had published her phone number. And so a lot of the information going forward with suspects is going to be focusing on those documents and pieces of paper that she gave to us to see if by putting that information that has come forward to her over the years can possibly get somebody to come forward and tell what they know and maybe move this case forward. You know, that struck me about that too, as we went through those documents, was how hard her and her sister tried to get some sort of national recognition on her sister's case early on yeah i remember that when i saw the letter back from unsolved mysteries you know i was just like oh my gosh you know i mean the 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 try to like you said really bring in that attention and it wasn't recognized and self mysteries i mean that was that's part of my childhood that's yes. probably the way that i was first introduced to true crime was through you know my family sitting around and watching unsolved mysteries and you know thinking about um the people who were involved in that but you know the kind of that drive of wanting to be able to help solve something like that and now you have podcasts that kind of have taken that um place of unsolved mysteries and you've got dateline and so many other things too but that focus on the unsolved crimes really has turned over to the podcast field but to see the effort that went into trying to get unsolved mysteries to do her sister's case but not only that asking them to reconsider the decision too right you know the and the disappointment like that her and her family felt that they felt like if sally had been kid from a wealthier family or had been a kid from a uh, more recognized place or something yeah, that like a case, bigger city. yeah mm -hmm. that her case would have been recognized by unsolved mysteries but because she was from this small town that there wouldn't they really felt like unsolved mysteries was saying there wouldn't be enough attention on their case and and the disappointment and the frustration with that, you know, is very clear in the letters that she writes back to Unsolved Mysteries, asking them to reconsider. And unfortunately, you know, Sally's case was never shared on Unsolved Mysteries because you do wonder if it was shared back then, if it would have made a difference in this case, if people would have come forward in this case. But the one thing that does happen is because they're going after unsolved mysteries and they're talking about that locally in Iola, it stirs up even more letters coming forward, even more people coming forward with information and um, calling her. And she would write down everything. She would always, you know, keeping a pad of paper there. And then, you know, you notice in the, in the, pages that there's a different handwriting on those things too and when you ask her about that then that's also her sister brenda who would do the same thing mm -hmm. so you have the two of them getting information from different people and writing things down and hoping that there would be some resolution there yeah and you know also reading through a lot of 
just her notes from conversations. And then you go through several more documents and then you realize that you're reading like another phone call and it's so similar to something that you had read from years before. Either getting the same tips or new tips have come in, but it's all kind of connecting back and she's grasping onto names that people will tell her and they're kind of just jotted in like the side notes. And so you do have to kind of be like, well, do you remember who this is or why this was brought up? And I mean, just she does. It's very much in her memory like she just heard it yesterday. So it has been almost like a Tetris puzzle trying to uh, comb through these pieces of paper and try to figure out um, where some of that comes from. One note that was either found in, in um, Sally's pocket when she died or was under her body, but it is a note from from Billy. What comes about here is that Carolyn does not have the note, and she can only speak being told from law enforcement officers about the Billy letter. The Billy letter appears to be a love letter. But it was very interesting because when she talked to us about the Billy letter um, and, you know, it being found with Sally, we did have somebody else who called us or contacted us about the Billy letter also. So when you talk to, so there is a little bit of a divide here on the information. So when Carolyn talks about the Billy letter, she says that letter was found in Sally's back pocket. And then we had another person who came forward and said that they had heard over the years, kind of through the grapevine, and they thought that the law enforcement was leaking that information out, that the Billy letter was found underneath Sally's body when she was found on the side of the road. But both of them seemed to come up with the same bit of information that this is a letter that basically is saying, I, I love you. I care about you. Um, I want us to be together. So even though we're going to be discussing the Billy letter and a little bit about who Billy is, we first have to look at how it could possibly tie into what happened to Sally that night. Because the importance is, did the letter have anything to do with what was going on with Sally that evening. And you have to look at a couple of things. You have to look at Sally's behavior that night. So Sally goes to the football game, something that was out of the ordinary for her. And she is offered, according to some people, she is offered a ride, um, but says that she already has one. So it does appear from that that Sally is possibly planning on meeting with somebody. But there is a conflicting story that comes out where a friend of Sally's named Helen claimed that the two actually walked home from the game together and that when they got to the area where the hospital is, Sally went one direction and Helen went another direction. 
if that's the case, then that means that Sally wasn't meeting anybody at the game, that she was planning on going home. But for the purposes of today's episode, I think what we have to look at is looking at Sally's behavior as the fact that she was possibly meeting somebody. Getting ready to meet somebody at the game. Well, it's also speculated that she ended up getting into a car with a redheaded boy who was possibly driving, quote unquote, a fancy sports car, which we've kind of talked about the the sports car before in right. previous episodes. Um, and so I think we're going to kind of go off of that scenario today. That was, It's possible Sally was meeting somebody. Right. So the question would be, could it be Billy who she's meeting? who's in that sports car and this is a little bit difficult to uh track down because we don't have the ability to find out every person in named billy who and what they drove we do know billy's last name but this is one of those things in podcasts where you have to kind of decide going forward what are you going to share? Are you going to share um, individuals who could possibly be a suspect's last names or identifying information about them? And we've decided that in this case with Billy, we are not going to include his last name. We think that it's important because we don't know that he had anything to do with this. We just don't think that we should include his last name. Sally, if she was meeting Billy and she was at the game, then Sally and Billy would have met up and she would have gotten in the vehicle with him. And then if you tie that into Sally's autopsy reports with the hamburger, then in talking to residents of Iola, there is something that they do after a game that kind of ties to that. Yes. And so usually, you know, after the games, they would cruise the town square. So that meant going around the square and kind of circling back and ending up in the Sonic parking lot. And, you know, I know for many of us, we've all cruised, you know, a city or a town square, you know, so that's feasible. And they're teenagers, you know, right. even though Billy is a little bit older than her at that point, he's still very much a teenage young teenage boy and it wouldn't be unusual for teens to go grab a burger on a date at that sonic so it wouldn't have been out of place if that's where they were you know i do think the one thing that would be important here is that i don't think that sally cruising with billy would have looked out of place billy being a little bit older than sally people may not like who knew billy may not have known who sally was what we can figure out the Billy would have been about 18 years old at this time. After the kids would kind of cruise the square, you know, sometimes they might want to go watch the stars or just go get like a private moment with each other on their date. So it wouldn't be unusual for them to park on, you know, Lover's Lane or in the country club parking lot or anywhere that they could get a little bit of privacy, which is kind of funny because that town is so small and kind of secluded anyways. But I guess that kind of takes us back into the location of where the accident with Sally happened. Yeah. So the country club is kind of up on a hill there and would be looking out, you know, where you would be able to look out over 
kind of the fields and the um, trees a little bit if you were up in that country club parking lot. When we were up there, I can see that being a possibility of sitting up there looking at the stars, you know, kind of hanging out. When they talk about the road where she's found being a lover's lane, that to me, we only heard that from two other people. Everybody else, when we mentioned this road, said they had never heard of that area out there being a lover's lane. It's pretty secluded. I don't know. I mean, there's not even really a place to pull off the road, really. So you would just be, if that's a lover's lane, you would almost just be sitting in your car on the road. I think that's awkward. Yeah, and I mean, at that time, too, that road wasn't even paved. Right, the country club road wasn't paved at all, but the road where Sally's body's found is not paved even now. Yeah. Um, but I mean, think about that. Where would you where would you pull off? You wouldn't. You'd be half in the street and then half right on like on the grass. And I get that there's not a whole lot of traffic out there, but it still seems odd that you would pull down that road and just sit in the middle of the road. It doesn't seem like a lover's lane. It goes literally from one road to another road without having like a cul-de-sac at the bottom or an area where you could turn off or an area where you could pull in. It's just a dirt gravel road that goes from one dirt gravel road to the next gravel road. It doesn't, that to me doesn't seem like lover's lane, but I can see you going out to the country club that has a golf course. I can see that area being the possibility of being out there being a possibility of a lover's lane. But if you're out there, then this is definitely somebody that Sally knew and trusted and felt comfortable with. Yeah, I would think if they made it, because it is far from, I mean, it's not far, but I mean, it's quite a distance from downtown Iola. Well, and when you think about the distance it is from her house, the farther she's getting from her house, the more nervous If you're not with somebody that you trust, the more nervous you would be getting. Mm -hmm. So what we know about Billy is Billy was 18 years old and a year prior to Sally's death, he was in a terrible motorcycle accident. He was riding his motorcycle when he collided into a woman attempting to turn into her driveway on North Cottonwood. The woman struck the motorcycle, throwing Billy off the bike. Billy suffered a severe head injury and was in a coma for a while. He would survive and go on to graduate from Iola High School in 1969. After graduation, Billy would remain in Iola, getting married. His first marriage ended in divorce. He later married again and lived in Iola with his wife and children until his wife passed away before him. And then he lived the rest of his days there as a widower and passed away just recently. Billy, according to sources, Billy was considered a suspect in the case and was interviewed in Sally's case within those first couple of months. According to several sources, he did go to the police station and was interviewed by police. However, he showed up for the interview. He was not accompanied by a family member or a lawyer, but instead was accompanied by Dr. Linsky. Dr. Linsky is a family doctor in Iola. He was second generation Iola doctor. Apparently after this interview with police, Billy was ruled out. So we do know that um, Billy 
raised his family quietly and never really got into trouble. Yeah, know. there's nothing indicative on Billy's behavior after, I mean, really anything. I mean, there's no, he doesn't have any history of any violent behavior. Um, he doesn't show up in any reports of being arrested. I mean, he has a few uh, traffic stops that show up, but nothing that says this is a person who, you know, felt guilty and so then kind of went on to a criminal behavior in life or had um, other problems or issues in life. It didn't have like anything that looked like drunk driving charges or anything like that that show up uh, that I could find. So it looks like somebody who spent a quiet life living in Iola, raising his family. And we do know that he worked at the Columbia Glass Factory. Yes, he looked at Columbia Window and Doors. Columbia Window and Doors, okay. And then do you, because I've only seen one picture of him. Do you know what color his hair was? So I've seen two pictures of him. One picture in the high school yearbook where he has a lighter, like it's a black and white photo, so I can't tell what color hair he has. He it looks like he has light colored hair, like not, not that he's dark brown. And to me, I don't think, you know, I mean, obviously it's black and white, but it, to me, it doesn't look like he's redheaded. Um, and then later in life, the picture that I've seen of him, he has gray hair. Um, nothing there to me looks like, um, it's kind of salt and pepper. So, I would think if he had read, it would be coming through. Then I don't see anything that looks like he would be redheaded. But again, you know, the only young photo I have of him is is black and white. So I don't I don't know. Well, I think with that, we're going to wrap up today's episode. We're not going to end with the discussion since we kind of started with the discussion in this episode. Thanks everyone for joining us today. We want to give a special thanks to the Iola community for all their help and support in making this season possible. Special thanks to Angela Henry, our local host. Bodies in the Bayous is an independent podcast produced and created by Gretchen Scanlon and Morgan Kelly. Research sources include the Iola Register, the Wichita Eagle, and the Parsons Sun. Music provided by Spotify. Technical assistance by Emma Kelly. Studio assistance by Catherine Alvarez. If you have any questions or tip about this case, email us at bodiesinbayous at hotmail.com. Follow us on Facebook at Bodies in the Bayous. We'd love to hear from you. Please leave us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Special thanks to the Hutton and Cantrell families for their support. Our ultimate goal is for these families to have some answers. If you have messages of support, we are happy to pass them on to the family if you email us at bodiesandbayous at hotmail.com.